News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Two years ago, Washington, D.C. descended into chaos and mayhem near the Capitol. And there are plans to mark the anniversary of the January 6th, 2021 insurrection. But you know what? Seems like there's still an awful lot of issues being dealt with in Washington, D.C. these days. For our update, we're joined now by Reggie Giacchini, our global news correspondent in Washington. Hi, Reggie. Good morning. So where are we at? In terms of the speaker vote and everything that's been going on there today, where are we at with that? Has any progress been made? Well, I mean, according to the uh, Republican leader, Kevin McCarthy, and his allies, they say that progress has been made, but it is hard to see that because on the floor, vote after vote after vote has failed to give Kevin McCarthy a majority at 12 noon Eastern, the 12th vote is going to uh, to come to the floor. This is the first time in 166 years it's taken this long uh, to get a speaker elected. Uh, you know, progress, whatever that means on the Republican side, is still to be seen. And I think what everyone's looking for is, does progress mean more concessions? And does more concessions mean a potentially weak speaker? All I've seen is from the looking at the listing of the 11 votes uh, so far is that he's actually had fewer votes by the time he got to 11 than he had from the first one. Especially by the last round, and that is because there is a representative who needed to go home for some personal reasons, and there is expected to at least be another Republican potentially out of the mix today as well. And what that does is uh, not impact the kind of vote, because it's not like these people are voting present and simply lowering the threshold. It means that that is going to be a vote that is not cast. And what does that do? Well, it gives an advantage potentially to Democrats who have lined up uh, behind Hakeem Jeffries with their full caucus for uh, all. 11 votes. So yes, he is receiving a few less votes than he has uh, from the very beginning, but he is convinced, and so are his allies, that after these wheelings and dealings that have gone on behind closed doors, especially into the late night on Thursday, that they may be able to lure some of these hard right members over. But does that alienate the moderates? That is the question. Well, that's what I'm wondering. If he's giving away, I know some of the the hard holdouts here want you know, good committee assignments and they want some control there. And if he starts giving that away, won't that upset other people? Well, it, it, it very well could. I mean, look, there are members on the hard right from the, the the Freedom Caucus, as they're called, that say that they want say on the legislative process, essentially what comes to the floor. Under the Democrats, when they were uh, in power under Nancy Pelosi, to get something on the floor, 100% of the party had to be behind it. Well, this, you know, these hardline members don't want that. They want to see change in the House. And there's been some kind of hesitancy on McCarthy's part to give in on that. But that could be something that is now uh, being handed over along with uh, an ability to bring a motion to vacate the chair, essentially to to call no confidence or to topple the speaker with just one person bringing that to the floor for a vote. It used to be a majority of the House needed that. So if that is the case, if Kevin McCarthy can simply be toppled by one person who's taking out some kind of grievance, that does, at least in the eyes of Democrats and some moderate Republicans, make him, if he gets it, a weak speaker. And with all that going on, I know the White House has mostly stayed out of this, but what's going to be going on today to mark the January 6th insurrection anniversary? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, number one, the White House has stayed out of this, but they have told Congress, at least Republicans, uh, quote, that they need to get their act together. That coming from the mouth uh, of the president. And here we are two years after uh, American government was brought to a standstill by the riot at the U.S. Capitol. And the House, again, under the guise of Republicans, has been brought to a standstill at the White House. A far different story. There are going to be uh, a ceremony, a solemn ceremony to mark this two year day. The president is going to hand out uh, civilian medals to officers that were involved in the J6 riots. He's going to hand out civilian medals to some elections workers who came under attack by the former president, along with secretaries of state from some uh, Republican states who they themselves came under attack from both Republicans, members of the public, and the president. Uh, It's a moment for the president to reflect, but the White House says this is not going to be a political ceremony. Also, going back to the speaker vote there for a second, like what is the deal here with Kevin McCarthy, who clearly wants this job very badly? Like, why not find another candidate that people can rally around? Well, I mean, this is the question. There have been some Republicans on the floor from the hard right who have been throwing new names into the mix. Someone like Byron Donalds. He's a freshman congressman from uh, from Florida or uh, uh, Kevin Hearn, a kind of longstanding uh, uh, representative from Oklahoma. These are names that have been voted on time and time again, but they're not getting any sway from the other side. The the 90 percent who are still voting with McCarthy. McCarthy doesn't see that as a threat. And, you know, we don't know if there's been an alternative candidate working behind a closed door to try and garner some support here. I think what's interesting to watch is Democrats. They are not willing to lend a hand to say, look, let's come up with some kind of consensus candidate that might make this easier. They simply want to watch Kevin McCarthy uh, you know, squirm, for lack of a better term here. Uh, and, and, and Democrats have said from both leadership and from down in the, the uh, rank and file that this is a Republican mess and Republicans need to dig their way out of it. Oh, wow. OK, so then what's going to happen today? Well, we're going to get a 12th vote. We may get a 13th vote. We may get a 14th vote. We don't know where these deals are going to go. We don't know how many people are going to vote with Kevin McCarthy. He cannot afford to lose more than four because of the slim majority that he has. Uh, And if he starts to lose five, then he either needs people to vote present so that it lowers the threshold, or he's going to find himself in a kind of nonstop vote going forward. He says that this could take as much time as it needs, but the longer this takes, the longer bills can't get passed, the longer Congress can't get sworn in, but also the longer there is no speaker in place, which is a missing link in the presidential line of succession. So it really starts to create concerns here over national security. Well, another interesting day for you, Reggie. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. If you have a particular type of diabetes and there is some big news for you this morning, let's find out what this announcement from the health minister was all about. Dr. Tom Elliott joins us now, the medical director at BC Diabetes. Dr. Elliott, thanks for being back with us. Oh, it's great to be on your show, Simi. Very, you. very different, right, from the last time that we spoke, isn't it? Yes, it sure is. So what has um, happened? What is the big announcement? Well, a roadblock to prescribing uh, two classes of diabetes drug, one uh, a shot called Ozempic or semaglutide and another a pill called empagliflozin or Jardiance. Um, the big news is that the government had had unreasonable conditions in place, in my mind, and I'd been lobbying for them to be removed and the government has now removed them, which means that if if you're living with type 2 diabetes and your family doctor wants to prescribe one of these drugs, uh, it'll happen with, it'll happen much quicker. In some cases, it wouldn't have happened at all. So now it's possible 
and it should happen quickly. The, 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 the big caveat, Simi, is that these drugs are expensive. So because of the BC uh, Pharmacare deductible, uh, my clients and, and your listeners living with type 2 diabetes won't get money back from Pharmacare until they've reached their deductible. Okay. But how much of a difference, Dr. Elliott, can these drugs make? A huge difference, particularly Ozempic or semaglutide. It's a, it's a once-a-week shot. Um, it does cost $7 a day at full dose, but it causes weight loss, sustainable weight loss, and it lowers sugar. Uh, and weight loss is a key component of managing diabetes. So my clients who go on this drug uh, are very much better off. Sure, it, You know, it is a shot. Uh, it suppresses their appetite. Um, they, they, they lose between 5 and 10% of their weight, typically. Um, and as long as they stay on the drug, it, it, it continues to work. You know, you're probably going to ask about, you know, what are the downsides? Well, well, cost is one, and another is nausea and vomiting, which occurs in about 10% of cases. Uh, it's usually mild, and it's, it usually goes away, particularly if we start with a small dose and follow the usual directions to gradually increase the dose. Right. So the idea behind this, and I remember from when we spoke to you, was that these are drugs that would make people in the long run healthier, therefore less dependent on the medical system. That's right. Exactly. And and that's the big argument. So, you know, paying it forward, looking for reductions in complications in in the long term. And, uh, you know, the ministry, I guess the Ministry of Health, Minister Dix, has, um, I think he's always known that that's the case. And, and, and the really good news is that uh, these drugs are now prescribable with fewer obstacles. There were a couple of other drugs uh, that were covered uh, in, in yesterday's announcement. Another diabetes drug that's particularly helpful in chronic kidney disease and, and a blood thinner uh, called Apixaban that was, uh, that was also uh, made unrestricted in terms of pharmacare coverage. Right. Now, these drugs are very popular. I've been reading a lot about them as well, like the Ozempic one you mentioned there in the United States. Like, are they quite, are they quite revolutionary when it comes to diabetes treatment? Yeah, well, we've, we, you know, to me, until, until these drugs have been around, they've been around about 10 years. Um, Ozempic is the latest iteration. It's, be, it's the best. So we've never had drugs that were safe that would cause sustainable weight loss and then reduce complications of heart disease and stroke and improve kidney disease. So, yes, they are, they are revolutionary. Um, and, and, of course, they don't cause low sugar, which was, which was my objection to the previous right. Pharmacare guidelines. So now, Dr. Elliott, if somebody wants these or has questions about it, is it as easy as saying, I would like to try this drug? Well, of course, you, you know, your family physician has to agree to prescribe it. Right. But, uh, you know, I, I've posted... Um, on our website, bcdiabetes.ca forward slash handouts, and, and your listeners can go there and, and they, can, they can print it off and show it to their family doctor if they, if they want. I would say most family physicians are aware of this drug class now. Um, they're, they're much more comfortable with it. Um, the, you know, the one caveat, of course, is cost that, that I've talked about. Right. Uh, it's and also, so, my, you know, my next campaign, Simi, is to is to get the pharmacare deductible either move, removed completely or significantly reduced. So will they wait, do you think? Like, is that how usually this goes? They wait to see how effective this is and then they decide? Oh, I think it's basically a financial, it's, it's a money decision. Um, 
that that you know as long as the NDP is in, that I think I think we can expect some kind of shift. Um, I'll, we'll be launching a petition to to remind the minister uh, that, that this is what's good for the people of BC diabetes. Four hundred thousand people in, in in BC living with type two diabetes. So. It's a big number of people and big benefits for the province. Right, and for people who don't understand that, so type two diabetes is not does not mean everybody who has diabetes. No, it's a, it's about ninety ninety percent. So it typically comes on in midlife. People are typically overweight, and that's why that's why these drugs are so are so valuable. Historically, the drugs we used for diabetes, gliburide or insulin, caused weight gain. So now we. Overweight is, is a contributor to diabetes. In the old paradigm, people would gain weight, would, would, would make their weight would be worse with medications. Now we've got drugs that lower weight, do it safely. So we, we get a virtuous cycle of improving outcomes. So that's, that's the excitement for me in my everyday job. And, uh, you know, your listeners, I, I recommend they do talk to their family physician. I, don't, I want them to, to remember that, you know, that, that diet and exercise are still numbers, n- number one. So, you know, eating less, eating low-carb, grainy, you know, staying away from white food and then getting sustainable exercise. Those are, those are absolutely critical. I was also reading a report in the Globe and Mail this morning, actually, saying that the health ministry is taking a look at why U.S. citizens are filling nearly 10% of the prescriptions in this province for that particular drug. It sounds like it is really in demand out there, Dr. Elliott. Well, well, yes, Simi, it works whether you have diabetes or not. So, so it's, a, it's a fantastic drug for overweight. And um, in Canada, it's not approved um, by Health Canada for obesity, but it's widely prescribed off-label, um, not just for Americans coming to Canada, but, but, but for Canadians and British Columbians. So, so it's a very effective drug, although expensive, and it's safe. This is something we've never had before. So is there a supply issue here or are things fine with that in Canada? No, there, there is no supply issue here. Um, there was a very brief um, um, issue in, in early December, which, which, which uh, was, was a kind of a freak situation. So no, we, we're not having the supply problems that have been reported in the United States. Oh, this is a, this drug is so interesting, just kind of watching this get more and more popular. Uh, Dr. Elliot, thank you so much for your time. Oh, it's great being on your show, Simi. Thank you. Bye-bye. Dr. Tom Elliott is a medical director at BC Diabetes, talking about what the treatments that are available for those with type 2 diabetes. It's 400,000 British Columbians. An announcement yesterday from Health Minister Adrian Dix saying that there are two medications that are now going to be expanded from limited coverage to regular benefits. One of those is the drug that's known as Ozampic. Uh, so that is a big big difference for people who have type 2 diabetes. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. So much about our healthcare system that is in the news this week, right? Subvariant COVID-19 cases likely to surge, update from e-com and, and their delays. And now, you know, another year, I think, busy for our healthcare workers. And BC paramedics are still in negotiations with the provincial government. So we thought, let's find out how that's going. Joining us now is Troy Clifford, president of the Ambulance Paramedics of BC. Good morning, Troy, and happy new year. Good morning and Happy New Year to you as well. Thanks for having me on. Well, let's get this update now. So this has been going on for quite a while. How would you characterize the negotiations? Uh, you know, I, I, 
after uh, we had a couple of long days last night, we were uh, late uh, late negotiating with uh, with the assistance of Vince Reddy. We're back uh, yesterday and today with uh, with his uh, guidance. I guess is the best way to describe it. And uh, I would say we're um, I'm more optimistic than I've been uh, leading into Christmas and the holidays for sure because uh, we're really making some progress on uh, particularly the non-monetary issues that are pretty much all cleared up. Uh, there's a few stickling points that uh, hopefully we'll be able to get through today, or uh, and then. Uh, but I, I, I'm still a little concerned because we still haven't seen um, a significant movement on uh, you know the the large gap we're seeing between us and paramedic services across Canada. You know we're about uh, base paramedic uh, comparing. I'll, I'll compare like for instance Toronto to uh, BC. Uh, we're about twenty thousand dollars less. Uh, annually uh, for a base paramedic and you know and then you compare us to other services so we haven't seen a lot of movement on that and that's really the reason that's a big issue is our ability to recruit and retain paramedics and um, and then uh, the other big stippler or stickling issue that we have is uh, around some of the service delivery areas that uh, you know we've seen improvement in rural and remote BC's BC with uh, service delivery and the uh, moving from that on-call precarious model of two dollars an hour and uh, the scheduled on calls service delivery issue that has proven to be a failure over the last few years. Um, and then our community paramedic program that we, we want a more of a commitment to those communities in rural and remote PC uh, to ensure that the indigenous communities and, and those remote community get that service that they need. And we haven't seen a big movement on that, but uh, we're told right. today they're going to be coming back with some uh, proposals on those areas. So right. that's but, why I'm cautiously optimistic. Yeah. I was going to say, but overall though, Troy, this sounds a lot better than the last time we talked about this. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I have been really, and our team has really been pushing that uh, every day that we delay this, if we're seeing uh, shortages of ambulances parked with, and, you know, we're hearing about the delays, we've seen them over the holidays. Uh, uh, and so every day that we don't get a deal that can get us on track to re- really re- uh, reviving the ambulance service, I guess, to use a term we use on every day, uh, uh, you know, we need to get this stabilized so that we can get on with fixing the uh, the service delivery so that every person gets an ambulance in their time of need. And, and this is one big component to get us back on track. And, uh, Do you think the system does need revitalizing, as you put it? Yeah, you know, I, it absolutely does. Like uh, one component of this is getting a stabilized collective agreement that pays paramedics and acknowledges the work they do. But we also still have to deal with these shortages of paramedic recruitment, training, all these things that uh, the collective agreement will support, but it won't fix, uh, uh, you know, we've been putting Band-Aids on with temporary measures and that sort of stuff to use our, our terminology. Uh, we need to do some uh, serious uh, preventative and, and, and revival of, of what we know is a good system, but uh, there's a lot of work to be done if we once we get a collective agreement to address these shortages of ambulances and training and recruitment. Could we right. need over over a thousand fifteen hundred paramedics coming into this business? I was just going to ask you about that. How has recruitment been going? I know that's been a big focus. It has not. Uh, we really have not uh, made any headway in the last couple of years because of those issues that we just people have choices and uh, everybody's in a in a challenge for human resources. So it's a competitive, competitive market out there. And people have choices. They're going into other public safety professions, police, fire, uh, Coast Guard, you know, corrections, uh, where they're getting more wages and benefits. Uh, they're going into other healthcare disciplines, the sciences, not nursing, even medicine. And so we're losing uh, potential candidates to those because of our lack of competitiveness. So um, it, we're 
we're not making any headway on the recruitment side, of, despite a lot of efforts by both sides. Right, but hopefully we will hear something positive on the deal. Troy, thank you so much for your time. Thank you again, and you have a good day. This is Mornings with Simi. How healthy are the world's glaciers? Well, not very, according to these latest predictions. Scientists who study glaciers around the world are predicting that more than half of them will be gone by the end of this century. Joining us now to talk about this is Dr. Brian Menounos, who's a professor of earth sciences at the University of Northern BC and Canada Research Chair in Glacier Change. Dr. Menounos, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Simi. Good morning. Can you tell me a bit about the ongoing study of glaciers? How significant are these glaciers that we're talking about? So the the glaciers that, um, if we think about uh, worldwide glaciers, there's uh, over 200,000 glaciers. Um, and these are ice bodies that don't include the great ice sheets, the Greenland and Antarctic ice sheets. So these are individual glaciers. And most of those glaciers are on the order of about a square kilometer or less. And our study suggests that by the end of this century, even under the uh, best case scenario, we'll lose about one half of those glaciers. And those are primarily the smallest glaciers. Okay. And which, where are we talking about? Which of these smallest glaciers? Where are they located? Well, Sydney, they're located uh, throughout um, our mountain ranges on the planet. Uh, So Western Canada in particular has a number of of these small glaciers. We also are blessed with uh, larger glaciers as well. So when we think about uh, complete deglaciation uh, driven primarily by fossil fuel use, we are looking at some of the ranges such as the Rocky Mountains, the Columbia Mountains, the European Alps, and areas in South America and New Zealand. And how long has it been since we have seen those areas without glaciers? been a long time, depending on where we are. Um, it's certainly many, many thousands of years. And there is, uh, there is a good news story out of this particular study. And, and that is that the world, really, if we can get our act together and reduce our dependency on fossil fuel use, there is some optimism for some of the larger and moderate-sized glaciers uh, by the end of the century under the emission scenarios. But we need to do better than what we had committed in terms of an international agreement at COP26. Right, so you're that saying that there's still hope for those big ones. There is still hope for the big ones. Um, and the, the reality here is that even for some of the moderate-sized ones, um, really the emissions, what we do to emissions is going to directly affect how much ice we have left. And that ice is critically important for aquatic ecosystems in Western Canada, Salmon rely on cool, abundant water in many of our streams and look no further than this last autumn when we had warm, dry conditions. Those glaciers, uh, those watersheds that were fed by glaciers had water. Those that did not uh, were very low flows. Right. That's what I was going to ask you about. So how critical are these glaciers to the ecosystem around them and to even not even around them, like, you know, nearby? They're critically important um, in in some smaller watersheds. Uh, they that amount of flow is used for hydro hydro generation, um, such as the Lejeune Basin for BC Hydro. That's a, an important source of electricity for the Lower Mainland. Um, there's a substantial amount of ice in the Bridge River. Unfortunately, by the end of this century, that ice will mostly be gone. 
But back to aquatic ecosystems, uh, when we think about some of the larger watersheds um, on the coast, these are critically important sources for 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 nutrient loading for these glaciers, uh, for the salmon itself, but also for indigenous people that have you, these, this ice has been a cultural icon uh, for thousands of years in these mountains. All right, and that you can tell what a difference that will make. I've seen a lot of pictures as well. Like now, I feel like this is really becoming more and more visible to people, isn't it? It is. We we have experienced uh, a, a rapid uh, acceleration of area loss of these glaciers, and so our study really looked at the, uh, the the most recent climate projections. What this study couldn't do and what we're actively working on is looking at how the reflectivity or how the surface properties of these glaciers are changing. So um, we all know that wildfire, for example, in, in Western Canada has been substantial in the last few years. The introduction of soot onto these snow and ice surfaces darkens those surfaces enhancing the melt. And so these, this particular study did not look at those effects. That's something we're actively working on. And unfortunately, when you take the thermal emissions driven by fossil fuel use, in addition to things such as wildfire, uh, the story is not good uh, for, for many of these ice bodies. Okay, that's fascinating. So even just the darkening of the surface of the glaciers, you think that's having an impact as well? Yes, we, we do feel that uh, in the last few years, the darkening of these surfaces, depending on where the regions on the planet do affect the melt, that is something that we have not, um, at, at this stage, has not been developed for global models of glacier mass loss. And that's something that the community is actively working on. But, you know, the end of the story or the end of the, the point here is that we as individuals, as, as provinces and territories, as countries and international communities really have an important role to play in terms of reducing our dependency on fossil fuel use. Dr. Meninison, is this across, like around the planet, is the glacier kind of losing size everywhere or are there some areas where it is more noticeable and more of a concern than others? That's a great question, Simi. Uh, there, there are regions that have experienced much more rapid melt. Um, unfortunately, Western Canada and the lower 48 has ha, have been some of those areas that have experienced widespread melt in the last decade, a little bit higher than the average. That's partly driven by the size of the glaciers, but it's also uh, driven by warm, dry conditions that that we have and have experienced in Western Canada. So take uh, global climate change. This is something that's happening on the scale of decades. So uh, a trend of warming, if you will. But superimposed on that, we have uh, yearly to decadal um, regional climatic conditions that can cause some regions to experience a slower melt or more rapid melt. And unfortunately, we've been in that area where we've experienced much rapid, more rapid melt in the last decade. So interesting. Thank you so much for your time this morning. You're very welcome.